church, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Revelation chapter 10. Well, we're about at the halfway point through our study of this book, and so I thought it would be appropriate for us to kind of catch up on where we are. And So if you'll bear with me, I want to just take just a few moments to do just a chapter by chapter, one statement from each chapter to bring us up to speed on where we are as we launch into the 10th chapter this morning. In chapter 1, we find the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He's in exile there. Jesus shows up to him in a vision and tells him to write this stuff down in a book. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates to John seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Some of them he commends for various things. Some of them he rebukes for various things. But all of them he exhorts to overcome and to be conquerors who persevere through the current tribulation and the tribulation that is to come. In chapter 4, we go deeper and higher into this vision as John is given a vision of the very throne of God. And he sees the God of all glory on that throne. In chapter 5, we see that that God on the throne is holding a scroll. That scroll is sealed. That scroll contains God's plans to finally bring an end to all sin and rebellion, to judge all sin, to finally complete the salvation of all of his people and to usher in the final state. But that scroll is shut, it's sealed, and only the lamb is worthy to open it. And so in chapter 6, he begins to do so. He begins to break the seals. There are seven of them, and in that chapter, he breaks six of them. And as he breaks these seals, we're told about tribulation that occurs on the earth. And this tribulation begins at the ascension of Christ, continues through the church age, and leads all the way up to the very final judgment in the end. In chapter 7, after the sixth seal is opened, there is an interlude in chapter 7, where we have two visions of the church. First, of the church arrayed as if ready for battle, Entering into the tribulation. And then a vision of the church as the great uncountable multitude before the throne coming out of the tribulation. In chapter 8, finally the seventh seal is opened. And when it is, when it does, there's silence for half an hour in heaven. After which John sees seven angels who hold seven trumpets. And the first four blow their trumpets which cause judgment on the earth. And this judgment is terrible, unleashing terrible judgment on creation. And then chapter 9, which we covered last week, covers the fifth and sixth sixth trumpet, which were focused directly on mankind, where demons are unleashed on the earth, first to torment and then to kill a third of mankind. And so now we're ready for the seventh trumpet to be sounded. But it's not going to be sounded yet. There is an interlude 
Just as there was an interlude between the, the sixth and the seventh seal, which was chapter 7, now there is an interlude, a pause in the action between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And this interlude will include all of chapter 10, which we'll cover this week, and the first half of chapter 11, which we will, Lord willing, cover next week. And so that leads us to our text this morning, chapter 10. There's 11 verses. We're going to read all of them. This is God's word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right hand, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray. Father, we wish to offer to you as an element of our worship this morning our attention to your word. Not out of some kind of vain curiosity about a puzzle about the end times, but because all Scripture is inspired by you and profitable. And so we ask, Father, that you'd speak to your church this morning from your word. I ask humbly, Father, that you might use me this morning as your mouthpiece. If there's anything that I would say that is not in accord with your word, may it fall on deaf ears this morning. But, Father, that which is in accord with your word, may it not just fall on ears, but be driven deep to the soul so that you might equip us to be ready for and to persevere through tribulation to come so that we might glorify you as a church, as your people. So we ask that, Father, in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you're taking notes, as we go through chapter 10 this morning, I see five movements in this vision that I want us to walk through, that kind of carry us through this strange vision. First of all, in verses 1, one and 2, John sees a mighty angel come down from heaven, and he's holding a scroll. So we need to talk about who that angel is and what's the deal with the scroll. 
In verses 3 through 4, John hears seven thunders, but they're not like any other kind of thunders. They're apparently saying something. and he, so, so he goes to write them down, but he's prevented from doing so by this mighty angel. We need to ask, what's up with that? And then in the next three verses, verses 5 through 7, this mighty angel turns to God and raises his hand to God, and he makes an oath to God, makes a grand pronouncement to God about a mystery that is revealed. And then in verses 8 and 10, John takes the scroll from the angel, and he eats it. And then in the final verse, John is then commissioned to prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So there's a lot going on in this vision. Let's look at each of these movements one at a time. First of all, John sees an angel coming down from heaven, and he's holding a little scroll. So who is this angel that John describes for us here in verses 1 and 2? Some have said that this is Christ. And certainly, some of the description that John gives us of this mighty angel coming from heaven does seem to accord with some of the description, at least, that we have of Jesus in the opening vision of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. We're told here of this angel that his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, bear in mind that the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 told us that his face was like the sun shining in full strength and that his feet were like burnished bronze. I don't know what all that looks like, but that possibly could appear like pillars of fire. But despite these sorts of similarities, I don't find it convincing that this is Jesus Jesus is nowhere referred to directly as an angel outside of simply the theophanies that we have in the Old Testament. And I don't take this to be a theophany here in this vision. Besides the fact that we're told that this is another mighty angel, which tells us that there is another that is like him. And of course, we know that there is none like Jesus. He is unique. There is none like him. And so I believe this to be an angel, another mighty angel. And we have seen another mighty angel. In chapter 5, we're told that a mighty angel asks who is worthy to open the scroll. We're told that was a mighty angel, same word. So this is another mighty angel here, and he's coming down from heaven Jesus will certainly come down from heaven eventually, but not yet in this vision, in the the eschaton. So this is an angel coming down from heaven to earth in John's vision, and he comes down specifically to John. One of the things that is interesting about chapter 10 and the vision that we have here that's unlike what we've seen to this point in the book of Revelation is that up to this point, John has simply been an observer in the vision. But in chapter 10, he becomes an active participant in the vision itself. And so he comes to John. And the description that John gives of of this angel certainly tells us that this is a quite impressive angel. 
He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Certainly there's no other angel in the book of Revelation that is given such fantastic description. But then in verse 2, we're told that he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So what is this scroll that this angel is holding? As we've already mentioned, we've already been introduced to one scroll in the book of Revelation back in chapter 5. The one who was sitting on the throne was, <clears throat> was holding a scroll. It's literally a book, but the books then were scrolls. They were unraveled. They were unrolled like a scroll. And John wept, if you recall, because no one was worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders said, ah, the lamb, the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And so in chapter 6, the lamb begins breaking the seals and doing just that and opening the scroll. This is a different scroll. I don't take this to be the same scroll. I take this to be a different one. We're told that it is little. It is a little scroll. And we're told that it is open. It's already open. We're, it's, we're told that it's open in the angel's hand. Now, just as the first scroll had something written on it, this scroll does as well. But we don't know for sure what is written on this little scroll. But as we walk our way through the chapter, we're given some indication as to what that scroll might contain. Now, before we move on to the second movement, I want us to wonder for a moment whether or not there is any significance to how the angel is standing. Because we're told over and over again how this angel stands with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Usually that's an indication to us that, that the writer is trying to communicate something to us. We're, that, that's a phrase, that's a, that's a description of how he stands that's repeated over and over in this chapter. So what is the significance of that? Some commentators say this is just part of the description of the angel, and so they take it to mean that this, this, this just describes that this angel's really big, right? He's got, his, he's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, so he's large, um, D.A. Carson notes that later on in the book of Revelation, something happens that might perhaps shed light on the significance of how this angel is standing on the land and on the sea. So just a little bit of a preview. In chapter 13, when we get there, John is going to talk about the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we'll talk about what that refers to when we get to that. But the way he describes them is noteworthy, that the Antichrist is the beast that comes out of the sea, and the false prophet is the beast that comes out of the land. And so Dia Carson notes or wonders that perhaps this picture of this mighty angel in chapter 10 with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land is meant to remind the reader once again that even these beasts that come out of the sea and come out of the land who will cause unspeakable terror, unspeakable suffering on both believer and unbeliever alike, that even they are on a short leash. That they too are under the sovereign reign and rule of God. And that they will not rise from the sea or from the land until this angel figuratively lifts his foot from the sea and from the land, releasing the Antichrist, and the false prophet to fulfill their role in the eschaton. 
Good work, D.A. Carson. I don't know. That might work. That might be, uh, uh, it sounds reasonable. But certainly we know from our study of Revelation that that doctrinal truth that God is sovereign over the forces of evil is a theme in the book of Revelation that is repeated over and over and over again. But we see another reference here to the sovereignty of God. As we noted, three times we're told how this angel stands on the sea and on the land. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that he's coming down from heaven with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Each time we're told about how this angel stands, all three of those words are used. The land, the sea, and the heavens. He's coming down from heaven, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. In verse 5, we're told that this angel who is standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore an oath by God. And then in verse 8, there's a voice from heaven and it says, take the scroll from the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So all three times it mentions all three of those words, heaven, land, and sea. Additionally, when this angel raises his hand and swears to God, listen to how that's, that's phrased in verse 6. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and, and what is in it. So that makes four times in this chapter where we have that trilogy of words. Heavens, land, and sea. And whenever those three used words are used together, they are meant to be representative of all of creation. And so this angel who comes from heaven and stands with, with a foot on the sea and a foot on the land is a reminder to us and a reminder to, God's, to, to John's readers that God is sovereign over all of creation. The heavens, the land, and the sea. That he created them all. And he has the right to end them all. That he started them. He's in control of them. Over every beast of the land. Over every creature in the sea. And over every bird in the heavens. Every cloud. Every raindrop. And yes, even over every demon in the abyss. And every beast that will come out of the abyss as we shall see. And so as, as John is led further into this vision. And as he inches closer to the final judgment, and as he takes us, his readers, along, we're reminded here that none of the suffering and tragedy of our day and none of the suffering and tra tragedy of these days which are to come will change the fact that God is still on his throne and that he is still in control. And that he is in control of the timeline of eternity. And nothing will happen outside of his plan and decree. It's all going according to plan. God is sovereign. But that's the first movement in this passage. John sees the mighty angel. And he sees that he's holding this little scroll. So now we go to the second movement. And we see the seven thunders. So this angel calls out with a loud voice. And John says it sounds like a lion roaring. So again, it's a mighty angel calls out with a loud voice. And when he does so, it's almost like the trumpets, uh, the angels with the trumpets. After the trumpet is blown, what happens? Something else happens. It, it, it causes something else, a subsequent action. Same happens here. When this angel calls out like a roaring lion, it causes these seven thunders to thunder. They make their thunderous sound in response to the angel's call. But apparently to John, these were not just everyday thunders. Because these thunders are actually speaking. They're actually saying something. 
John hears them audibly. And so just as John was instructed to do with every aspect of this vision, he begins to write down what the thunders say. But then he is interrupted in that process. Look at verse 4. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice. Maybe this is the voice of God. Maybe this is the voice of Jesus. We don't know. But it is a voice from heaven. And what is it saying? It says, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, we're not told why John is not allowed to write this down. Neither are we told the contents of what the thunders are saying. We have only our guess. In Scripture, thunder is usually associated with judgment from God, usually as pronouncing some kind of judgment. And so that knowledge, coupled with the fact that there are seven of them here, indicates that these seven thunders are seven additional judgments from God in line with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, which we'll cover in chapter 16. Now we've got the seven thunders. But why are they sealed up? Why is John told not to write them down? Again, we don't know that for sure either. Some have suggested that perhaps these judgments were just canceled by God. He changed his mind. But we know that God is not changing, and so that can't be the case. Others have suggested that perhaps these judgments are so superfluous and repetitious to the other judgments, they're, they're all just the same, and so there's no reason to reveal them and talk about them. And I don't think that fits with the flow of the text either. But others have said that these seven thunders are hidden because they reveal such incredible judgments that are so terrible and so tragic and cause so much suffering and are so horrible that they dare not even be written down. I don't know, that might be the case, but if it is, imagine that. What we know of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls to come that these would be so bad that they dare not even be written down. We don't know for sure. This is one of those things that's kind of a Deuteronomy 29, 29 thing. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? But the thunders sound, and John, for some reason, is prevented from recording what they say and what the judgments represent. But then, in the third movement, an angel turns to the Lord and swears an oath by God. Now, what is the content of this oath? Look at verses 5 and 6. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's a nod to the eternality of God. He never ends. Who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Again, heaven, land, and sea, reminding us that God is sovereign over all of creation he made it. He has the right to end it the way he so chooses. And so this angel swears by this God. And what is the content of that oath? The end of verse 6. That there would be no more delay. This is quite an announcement. That on the timeline of eternity, there would be no more delay. You realize there's a delay now. There's a delay. God's not finished doing what he's going to do. He's still gathering in his sheep right now. But according to this angel, at this point, there will be no more delay. The end is upon us. 
the final consummation of God's plans to judge all sin and to usher in the final state is at hand in this vision. There shall be no more delay. And then he gets more specific in verse 7. What does he mean by there will be no more delay? Verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So the background for this vision comes from the Old Testament. So I want you to keep your finger here at Revelation 10 and flip back with me to the book of Daniel. And specifically to the end of that book of prophecy, Daniel chapter 12. In the context of the final chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel is given a prophecy about the final judgment and the final state, the new heaven and the new earth. And an angel appears to Daniel, just like an angel appears to John. And someone asked this angel, how, sh- how long shall it be till these wonders happen? In other words, how long before the end? How long till this stuff happens? I want you to listen to how the angel responds and see how closely this resembles what we've just read out of Revelation 10. I'm going to read Daniel 12, verses 7 through 9. And I heard the man clothed in linen, that's the angel, who was above the waters of the stream. That sounds like, you know, standing above the stream and above the land. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not. No, we don't either. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And now what does the angel say in Revelation 10, verse 6? There shall be no more delay. No more delay. Now, what does it mean that this was shut up and sealed for a time, times, and half a time? Well, I hope to talk more about what that might mean next week when we launch into chapter 11 and cover that portion of the prophecy from the book of Revelation in more detail. But for our purposes this morning, I'll just tell you that clearly it was unclear to Daniel. He didn't know what it meant. He just just knew that it meant not yet. Not yet, not now, but at a later time. And now in Revelation 10, verse 6, now that later time is here. Now it's come upon us, and there will be no more delay. And again, in verse 7, the angel specifies that he's specifically referring to when the seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, which is going to happen in the second half of chapter 11. And I would submit to you that I believe that that is the content of the little scroll as God begins his final unleashing of judgments and the final consummation begins. When that happens, we're told by the angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What is the mystery of God that he refers to here? Whatever it is, it's also... It's also been announced by his servants, the prophets. So 
it's not much of a secret if it's already been announced, right? Often we find this tension in Scripture that God has a mystery that is hidden in part to some, but to others it's not a mystery. To others it's been revealed. In fact, the closing verses of Paul's letter, which we read in our worship time earlier, Paul gives a doxology that articulates that very thought. Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So there it is again. A mystery that on one hand has been kept secret for long ages, but on the other hand, it's also been disclosed. And it's been disclosed through what means? Through the prophetic writings, Paul says. I would submit to you that the only prophetic writings to which he could be referring are the writings of the Hebrew prophets that are recorded in the scriptures for us. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, Hosea, and so forth. These disclosed that mystery. They revealed that which had been kept secret. And what was this mystery that Paul was referring to? It was the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. God's plan to redeem sinners. God's plan to to send his son Jesus to earth to live as one of us, to die in our place, and to redeem us by grace through faith. This was a mystery in one sense, but it was also revealed were reminded of the two on the road to Emmaus to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. And and we're told that he unpacked the prophets and showed them how they all pointed to him. And yet it was a mystery. It was both. We're reminded of when Jesus was asked by his disciples during his earthly ministry why he so often spoke to them in parables. He said to them in Matthew 13 verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, heaven. but to them it has not been given. Speaking of the unbelievers. And so God had determined to whom he would reveal the secrets of the kingdom. God had determined to whom he would reveal these mysteries. And so friend, if you've come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord... God has revealed these mysteries to you. Praise God. Listen to how Paul describes this idea to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, there's the mystery. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so how was this mystery unveiled to Paul and those, to, those believers to whom he wrote? He answers in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I give all praise to God that he has done this for me and for you, my brothers and sisters who know him in that way. That he's shown in our heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lifting the veil of the mystery of the gospel. and Bringing us to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And I would submit to you that this is the same mystery to which John is writing about here in Revelation 10 verse 7. That at the blowing of the seventh trumpet there shall be no more delay. The final consummation of God's redemptive plan in history will be upon us. And this, I believe, is the very content of the little scroll, as we'll see. We'll close out the action of this vision and of this chapter with the last two movements, movement four in verses eight through 10, where John takes the scroll from the angel as he's instructed to do by the voice that comes from heaven. And he's instructed to eat the scroll. And so he does so, he obeys, he eats the scroll, and just as the angel promised, it was sweet as honey to his taste. But also, as the angel promised, it made his stomach bitter. And then the fifth movement in verse 11, where John is once again recommissioned to his ministry of prophecy to prophesy about the remaining judgments to come. The background for this vision also comes from the Old Testament, and so I want to encourage you to turn back a little bit further in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel. And so if you were in Daniel, uh, just turn back one book. Ezekiel comes right before Daniel. If you go too far to Isaiah and to Jeremiah, turn back to the right a little bit, come to Ezekiel chapter 2. We've already seen a number of allusions in the book of Revelation to uh, parts of Ezekiel. Um, one was the vision that we had of Jesus, um, or excuse me, the, the vision that we had of the throne room of God in chapter uh, 4 and 5, and that mirrors closely the vision of the throne and the vision of God's glory that we see in Ezekiel chapter 1. But in Ezekiel chapter 2, that's where Ezekiel is commissioned to his ministry as a prophet. God calls him to serve him as a prophet, and there's this elaborate commissioning service that we see for the prophet Ezekiel. And it's strikingly similar to what we see the angel saying to John and what happens to John when he eats the scroll. Very similar commissioning service. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning down in verse 8 and continuing into chapter 3, verse 3. This is the... Uh, the word of the Lord speaking, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house, speaking of the nation of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give to you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Very similar, right, to John's experience here in Revelation chapter 10. We've got a scroll. They both eat the scroll. It's sweet as honey to them. Now, in the Revelation 10 account, we're told that it became bitter in John's stomach. And although there's no direct reference to this in the Ezekiel account, we are told that the prophecy was one of lamentation and mourning and woe. And we know from the remainder of the book of Ezekiel that it was a bitter word of prophecy that he was take, to take to the nation of Israel. So what are we to make of this? First, we are to make of this that this is John's recommissioning service. He's being recommissioned here as a prophet. John was commissioned by Jesus in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus says, write what you see in this vision in a book and send it to the seven churches. And that's what John's been doing. He's been faithful at that. He's been writing this stuff down and sending it, recording it in the book of, of Revelation. But it's almost as if when we get to this point, what is to be revealed next is so terrible, so horrible, so bad, so gut-wrenching that he needs to be reminded that he's doing the Lord's work. That he just needs to deliver what God gives to him. And that this is important. And so like the prophet Ezekiel, he's commissioned to this task once more. But what are we to make of him eating the scroll and it tasting like honey and then turning his stomach bitter? What are we to make of that? What does that mean? Well, the idea of eating the scroll symbolically refers, he's not talking about literally eating the book, it's symbolically referring to him getting that word into him, ingesting that into him himself, symbolically taking it in. This was a common experience of the prophets that you, you can't speak out the word of God until you ingest the word of God into your own heart and life. And so before he is told to prophesy in verse 11, he must first ingest it himself and eat it himself in verse 10. And when he does that, it's as sweet as honey in his mouth. We're reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 119 as he writes the entire psalm about the word of God. He says in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. David, as he writes one of his psalms, Psalm 19, he speaks about the precepts of the Lord and the rules of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord. And he says of them in Psalm 19, verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know this to be the case. Sometimes when we read God's word, it is sweet. It's a delight. We read about the promises of God. We read about God's covenant with his people. We read about the mystery of the gospel revealed to us, unveiled to us. We read about our glorious inheritance as the saints. We read about the holiness of God and the glory of God and the majesty of Christ and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it is sweet. Sweet as honey. 
But you know as well that there are other times when it is bitter. When we read about persecutions and tribulations and trials. When we read about the resident sin that remains in our flesh. When we read about the fact that the path to glory is paved with suffering for God's people, it's bitter. It's bitter. So John is being told here, that is the character of the prophecy you are to deliver. Reminds me of the story of Isaiah after he gets the throne room vision of the glory of God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says... um, I'll go, I'll, after all that, he says, I'll, I'll go for you, I'll, I'll, I'll preach for you, I'll do your work. And then he's, he's given the prophecy that he's to be delivered to the people. And it is a prophecy like that of Ezekiel, of lamentation and mourning and woe. It is a bitter prophecy. And so, for John as well, the prophecy that he is delivered deliver to the seven churches, from this point on, is God's plan for the end. And God's plan for the end is both sweet and bitter. In what sense is it both sweet and bitter? Well, we know that it's sweet because Jesus wins. Jesus is the ultimate victor. He wins in the end. When all sin and evil will be finally defeated, ultimately defeated forever. And the deceiver will be put in the Lake of fire to be judged forever. No more to deceive God's people. Every sin will be judged. Every evil will be answered. Every injustice will be solved. Jesus wins in the end. And we are reunited. We get the, we, we get the inheritance that, that, that Peter says is, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know what that inheritance is, right? God, being reunited with the Father, being reunited with Jesus. So this prophecy is sweet, but it's also bitter. It's also bitter for the church because the journey toward that sweet end is paved with suffering and persecution. And then John is told to go and prophesy this. This is your job now. You've eaten it. You've experienced it. You know it. Now go deliver it. You must again, he says in verse 11, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. So what is our application to this text? Let me close with just four considerations along this line. First of all, when we are reminded of the vision of the mighty angel coming down from heaven, we should be reminded that God is sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over everything. And so, consequently, we ought not let the chaos of our world fret us. We ought not to be alarmed. We ought not to to worry and give in to anxious thoughts or fear. Because as seemingly chaotic as it may get, God is still in control. He is still on his throne. He is still sovereign. He's still at the helm. Secondly, When we're reminded in the vision of the seven churches that judgment is coming upon us, we likewise should not give in to worry and fear and fret. Because evil 
though it may seem like it is winning the day, it's not. It's already lost the end game. Its days are numbered. Jesus won the final victory at Calvary. And one day he will pull a drawstring on the timeline of eternity. And evil will be no more. But also, friend, if you're playing patty cake with sin, instead of fighting against sin in your own heart and life, and killing sin in your own heart and life, be warned that this God who hated sin so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for the sins of mankind, he's the one to whom we will one day have to give an account. He's the one to whom we will have to give an answer for every evil thought, every careless action that we have taken. The question is, do you have an answer? Do you have an answer when you have to give an answer? And if your answer is not, the Lord Jesus Christ is my only hope, I cast all my hope on him and his finished work on the cross alone, then you will have no hope in that day. Make sure that you have an advocate with the Father through Jesus. Thirdly, in the mighty angel's announcement to th- that the, the mystery of God will be fulfilled in the seventh trumpet um, sound, when the seventh trumpet is blown, we see a reminder here that God has removed the veil of the mystery of the gospel for his children. And so I would just encourage you, if God has been so kind as to remove the veil of the mystery of the gospel for you, then thank him for it. Doesn't he deserve thanks for that? Thank him for that every day of this week. And then seek to live a life that is commensurate with the rescue that has been achieved on your behalf through Christ. But if God has not yet done this for you, if he's not lifted the veil of the mystery of the gospel, then I would ask you, I would encourage you to ask him to do that. Ask him to remove that veil. Ask him to lift the mystery of the gospel and to make it plain to you. And then fourth and finally, in this picture of eating the scroll, let us be reminded of two things. First, that we must ingest the word of God into our own lives. That before we can do what he's called us to do, to speak it out, we've got to have it in our own hearts. Before we can put it on our children and, 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 and impress it upon them, we have to have it in our hearts, mom and dad. Before we can impress it upon those around us to whom he intends for us to reach with the gospel, we must have it in us. So let me encourage you to read the words of this scroll. Eat this scroll. Maybe commit yourself this morning to every day this week to ingest a portion of this scroll and to get it inside your own. As Paul reminds us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul says that it's inspired by God, he means it is God's breath. And so let us ingest God's breath. And then secondly, that this would be our great recommissioning as well. Jesus said to his early disciples before he ascended back up to heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The message that we deliver to a lost world 
is both sweet and bitter. It is sweet because it is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is bitter because it fixes bad news. And the bad news is that we are hopeless sinners who deserve judgment for all of eternity. And friend, the good news outweighs the bad. So let us ingest this and then let us speak it out as prophets to our generation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I just am led, Father, just to have a moment where we pause and allow your spirit to drive this word deep into our heart. We do not want to walk away from this time simply with a better head knowledge of what it might mean. God, we want to be equipped to faithfully persevere through whatever trials and tribulation you lead across our path. As we consider believers on the other side of the world who are are enduring unspeakable tribulation, Lord, we pray for them that you might equip them to persevere as our brothers and sisters through their trials. And we don't ask that, those kinds of trials for ourselves, but it appears as though those sorts of times are coming for all. And you intend for this book to prepare us for that. And so, God, I can't even consider all the ways in which you might use this portion, this meal, this morning in chapter 10 to do that. But we ask in faith that you would, at this very moment, enlarge our picture of your sovereignty. Remind us that judgment is coming. Give us the faith to fight against sin residing in our flesh to kill it for your glory and to live faithfully for your glory. Give us a resolve in our spirit and in our soul, Lord, to ingest your word, such a precious meal you have set before us. Help us to feast on your word, Lord, but not to get fat on it, to speak it out, to share it with a lost world, And to share the hope of the gospel, not just with the lost around us, but with the found around us who need encouragement in their trial. In this manner, Lord, equip your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.